Well, good morning to you all. Trust you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. It's a great season of the year. We just get to roll one thing after another in terms of God's blessings and the opportunities. We're still in process putting up the Christmas trees and all that kind of thing. So, but. And if you could just get the leaves to all fall at the same time, too, you know? <laughs> I'm like, we got rid of all the maple, and then the oaks start falling. You get rid of the oak, and then the pecans finally fall, but it's, it's good. Well, let's pray. We'll be in 2 Kings 21 today, 2 Kings chapter 21. And uh, the run-up here to Christmas, as it, we've, we've mentioned briefly before, but it's not going to be very jovial for us, uh, because Judah is in its final de- days of decline that started with Manasseh last week and will continue through Ammon. We have a couple of bright spots with uh, Josiah that, uh, f- that'll take several weeks to cover. Um, but the Lord still has his good purposes even in the midst of our festivities because one of the things we can never lose track of is it is precisely this darkness that uh, Judah declines into and then 400 silent years following uh, the captivity and the return, and they think there's going to be a restoration. It's incomplete because the Messiah does not come as they expected, and people are are basically going, where is God in all of this? There's only ruin on every hand, and, you know, we, we thought when we got rid of the Babylonians, all things would be good, and it's the Persians, and got rid of the Persians, and it's the Greeks, got rid of the Greeks, it's the Romans, and then Christ comes, and so we'll be Uh, Even in the midst of trouble, uh, there is great hope for the people of God. So let's pray this morning and work through 2 Kings 21. Father, we're thankful for testimonies of your word, sometimes that are very encouraging to us and pull us up out of the darkness and sorrows and griefs of our personal miseries, and uh, many of which are caused by our sin uh, many of the rest of which are caused just by being in this and cursed world. And we bear up under the wearing out of our bodies and the frustrations of life in ways that you cause for us to bear up. But we also have passages that are not so much encouraging as they are directive. They put a finger on a problem that we are prone to and give us opportunity to turn back to you so that we do not deserve your uh, discipline because we have been swift to hear your word and swift to apply it to our lives. So bless us even as we listen to what you have to say this morning uh, from the testimonies of your ancient, uh, ancient people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, surely at this point the land could breathe a sigh of relief. Judah and the people have to be just as we are when we stagger through certain political reins and are hoping there's light at the end of the tunnel, hoping that somehow you can emerge on the other side into a a transformation. And of course, even the politicians themselves would love to emblazon across their uh, time of presumable service, hope and change, you know, and they'll use uh, designations that are borrowed even from scripture or from Um, something way beyond what they can actually promise. Manasseh is gone. Granted, he repented in the end, but the damage that he did to Judah was pretty profound, and the people did not repent. And his legacy was written so that when people think of Manasseh, 
we think of evil and we think of prolonged evil. And if it weren't for just a few short verses in Chronicles, we wouldn't even know that he repented. So his legacy spoke of darkness and doom, and people are longing for a fresh start, the turning over of a new leaf, a kind of a time of a reset. And now a new king could bring that start. So hope always springs up with youthful vigor. In this case, let's see where this hope takes us. Second Kings 21. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Meshulamith, the daughter of Heroes of Jotbah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. He walked in all the way in which his father walked, and served the idols that his father served, and worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and did not walk in the way of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him, and put the king to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ammon that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And he was buried in the tomb of the garden of Uzzah, and Josiah his son reigned in his place. That's it. That's all the testimony we have about this guy. So hopefully we'll go short today, right, to make up for a couple of weeks. My, my wife's like, yeah, that's likely. So we say a fresh start, a new course, or simply more of the same. When you run through a new election, everybody's hoping that you'll have some new direction, and hopefully it will give you a better economic circumstance, and a better social circumstance, and a better geopolitical circumstance, and greater peace in the world, and bringing home of soldiers, and lots of blessings, and tends to be more of the same. Same wickedness, same distress, same emptiness as the old. And how can that be? Hadn't Ammon seen with his own eyes the wreck and ruin that had been caused by his father's reign? I mean, he's not a young man when he comes to, uh, to reign, at least not by uh, ancient standards. A lot of times kings would come to, to power between 8 and 18 years old. He's 22, so... He's seen a lot, and yet he turns against the Lord. The eyes of the wicked are not known for perspicuity. The heart of the rebel is never known for good sense. When my wife and I were looking for our first home, we found an appropriate house with a pretty decent yard out in Greer. This is actually a picture of it. Isn't Google Maps a wonderful thing? You can do a drive-by of your uh, former things, uh, you know, we could take pictures of places up in Indiana where we used to live when I was a child and so on. But this is a, a first house that we intended to buy. And it, was, it had been on the market for a little while, so we thought it'd be reasonable to make a, um, an offer that was something short of what the individual had listed it for. So we gave a counter, an, an offer, he made a counter offer, and we studied it through and said, well, that's pretty reasonable. So he's made an actual, he has made the offer. All we have to do is put our initials on the contract, sign it, and it is now a, a valid contract. So we signed it and sent it back to him. And then he said no. And he tore up the contract and tried to walk away. So Christian and I thought about it for a while. He said, well, according to the law, at the point at which we had signed it, because he'd already signed it with the 
other changes, it became a legal contract, and we could actually force him to sell us the house at that price or sue him uh, otherwise. And so we prayed about it for a while and said, we really don't want to go through that. If the Lord has caused him for some reason to be obstinate after he got the very price that he asked for, you know, in the uh, sending it back to us, then something's going on here and we'll leave that in the Lord's hands and we'll, we'll go our way. And it turned out for the best. Uh, we actually got a house within a quarter of a mile of there. But since we had made an offer on this house first, we had done all the research for the whole area and we had, uh, we knew the comp values of houses. The house came on the market and we bought it like two days later. And we, we didn't have to do all that additional research that we had done on the first house because we had been right. In fact, it was on the same street, a quarter mile away. Just it, the, the street itself hooks and curves around. Um, the guy had been going through a lot of uh, dark times, a lot of problems, and himself didn't have a lot of good sense in, in the process of making the poor decisions of life that he had made. The seller had presumed upon our situation and kept wanting to raise the price even after we had a legal contract and assumed that somehow we would go along with it and we simply said no and walked away. It was interesting to watch that that house sit empty for at least the next um, four years that we were there and run down and weeds take over everything and those bushes covered actually went up above the roof line all those bushes that you see in front of the house there and uh, the house was in disrepair the roof started showing damage and possibly falling in so he, he when he ended up selling it eventually he got much less than he would have presuming on a good circumstance is never a good policy in life Presuming that somehow, with the havoc and wreck and ruin that we've made of lives, that we are going to get something from God out of it is not a good pattern. God is not obligated to bear with the wicked. And that's whether we're dealing with the wicked in the sense of they've never trusted Christ in the first place, but it's also when his people act the part of the prodigal and go their own way and basically say, yeah, you know, Again, I grew up in a Christian home, went to church for a while. Uh, It's okay. I can presume upon God's grace. It's never a safe place to find ourselves in. And that's essentially the position that Ammon was in. The passage begins with an interesting portion of a testimony in verse 19. And I think we can legitimately draw the conclusion from it that God is not obligated to live long life. Ammon lived to what age? 24. Dad lived to, well, the earlier passage last week told us that he became king when he was 12 years, and then he reigned 55 years. That's longer than any other king of Israel and Judah. So he was 67, we assume, approximately. So Ammon looks at the circumstance of all of his father's wickedness, and it seems to have worked out okay for his father, I mean, sure, there's a little bit of havoc in the land, and Daddy got captured by the Assyrians, but he did come back, after all, and he got to keep reigning after that, and that's never happened to any king prior to this point. So it worked out for Dad. 
And at very least, you can see, you know, could be floating around in Ammon's mind. I don't want to impute things to him, but what we do know is the testimony of the text itself, and that is God is not obligated to live long life, to give it to other people. Some trees die when they are just leaflets, right? So we have dicotyledons spring up, and they have just two little seed flowers, and the deer come along and nibble them off, and they're gone. They, they never had a, an opportunity to become a tree. And others grow up and become massive, and if you're dealing with sequoias or redwoods or some tree like that, could live several thousand years but God is not obligated to one or the other. And we, we think that somehow just because we are sentient creatures, because we have brains, because we have wills of our own, that God is obligated to extend a certain amount of life to us. He is not. And we have heard just this past week, the Lord can take his servants when they are infants, when they haven't even been born yet. Or he could let us live a, what we would even consider a full life by modern standards and live into our mid-90s before we go to meet our Creator. But we cannot presume against God's plan. And there's presumption that takes place everywhere from teenagers who presume that I can live my life for myself for a while, or young people in their 20s and 30s that, yeah, I can, I can live in business and kind of hammer out what I want out of life first, and then, you know, once I have a family, once everything is settled, then I can begin living for the Lord. But that goes all the way up to the end stages of life where we can start presuming that God ought to. So I just had a birthday uh, while we were all at the wilds together a couple weeks ago. And I could assume that, oh, you know, that's, uh, I'm, I still have about half my career, okay, a little less than half, uh, in front of me. But if I presume that and assume that, that's a presumption against God's plan, not in line with God's plan. Now, I, I should plan that if God gives me long life and allows me uh, enough days that I continue to serve him, but what if I start living for myself now because after all I have 25 years left of service, oh, actually 20, okay, 19. So the last five years, 10 years I can give to the Lord in, in the next whatever I can live from. Dangerous thinking. And even if I were to look at myself and say, well, I'm 85, well, I'll, I'll live a certain way for now, and because after all, my grandmother lived to 98 and a half, so I have good genes, so I'll probably make it with dangerous thinking. God is not obligated to give long life to anyone. The death rates in the United States, there was no way for me to, to blow this chart up. I tried to get it larger. But let me just uh, talk to you a little bit about what's in that chart. You can take a picture of it and blow it up on your phone. Um, death rates in the United States this year alone show us that, of course, the elderly do die at higher rates than the rest of the population. That's to be expected. But that's not the only conclusion that we could draw from the, the death tables Deaths of infants under a year old exceed 20,000 per year in America, still. In other words, there's no expectation that you'll live to four. 
Deaths of children ages 1 through 4 exceed 4,600 per year. Death rates drop dramatically for children ages 5 through 14. Typically, once a child reaches age 5, he's going to live longer. He's not going to die of any of the childhood diseases. And he's not elderly yet, so our medical system now is able to, to keep such a child alive most of the time. But then suddenly it jumps for ages 15 to 24-year-olds, who 53,000 die a year. I wonder why that is. might have something to do with 2,000-pound uh, vehicles. might also have to do with drugs. They're not normally taking drugs when they're 5 to 14, but then all sorts of untoward behavior starts occurring. And males don't have a brain yet, so they're doing all sorts of stupid stuff, ages 15 to 24. But what we can conclude from a chart like that is people are dying. And there's no guarantee of life. Many of you have heard the story of of William Borden, a young missionary who's preparing to go to northwestern China to serve the Hui Muslim community Most don't know of Borden's diverse capabilities. Uh, Charles Erdman was one of his professors at Yale, and Erdman wrote that no other student exerted a greater personal influence over me than Borden. Quote, his judgment was so unerring and so mature, I always forgot there was a difference in our ages. His complete consecration and devotion to Christ were a revelation to me, and his confidence in prayer a continual inspiration. When he's in college, in seminary, his wisdom matched that of people who'd been teaching there for 40 years. Borden became a director at Moody Bible Institute, and at age 22, a a member of the North American Council of the China Inland Mission. He decided to study Islam and Arabic in Cairo, but in March 1913, he contracted cerebral meningitis, dying less than three weeks later. He was 25. And you're back to, wait, but what good would he have done? We don't know. That's in God's hands. And whatever God's purposes were, the death of his saints still remains precious in both ways. That pastor talked about this morning already. And that is some he appoints to an early death and some to a late death. But what are we doing with whatever days he gives? Ammon comes to power when he's 22 years old. And just looking at the longevity of his family and past history, he could assume that he would have at least 20 to 40 years of reign. And instead, he has two. God is not obligated to bear with the wicked. And therefore, when we find ourselves in sin, it's always the right moment to repent, to humble ourselves and begin walking with him and for him. God is not obligated to give us a good upbringing. The next couple of verses remind us that Manasseh had been, must have been quite the father. His only recorded interests, I, he may have had hobbies, things like that. There are other things about each one of these people's lives that God did not consider relevant. But the only thing that the scripture records were Manasseh's interests were multiplying evil through the land. That I, He took an active role and some sort of delight, and multiplying wickedness. Let's destroy the righteous. Let's multiply murder in the city. 
So if he taught his children anything, it was how to be good idolaters, how to be scorners, how to be self-centered, violent tyrants. That's daddy. God's not obligated to give us a perfect upbringing. That doesn't make us less responsible for the choices that we make. A wicked example is no reason to do wrong, but a righteous example is every reason to do right. Why? Because righteousness is truth. It follows after God's command, a God who knows and the future and projects it for us and tells us what the consequences of doing right and doing wrong are, and we have every reason to believe him. So having seen others repent increases one's own culpability, and I think that's one of the things that we see with Ammon. You saw him under all this wicked influence for all these years of his father's life, the first 22 years of his own life, Ammon's own life. But he also saw his father repent and try to undo the wrong that he had done. And Ammon looks at his father's repentance and says, no, that's the thing we need to undo. He actually saw what God would do with a person who humbled himself before the Lord and the new opportunities granted. And Ammon presumes against all of that and assumes God is obligated to do things with me that God is simply not obligated to do. Third, God is not obligated to give religious latitude. Verse 22. We, we already know this. We can cover this almost endlessly. But our world demands tolerance of every purported spiritual path other than faith in Jesus Christ. Um, anybody read that article this week that said right now, since the Hamas committed all these atrocities in Israel, uh, a whole bunch of progressive women are converting to Islam? You might see that article. Okay, a couple of you did. Does that puzzle you at all? Since uh, they're, they're very frequently LGBTQ plus women converting to Islam, and they're like, okay, now, now they have two grounds to kill you. And under Islam, being LGBTQ plus is already a death sentence, but to convert to Islam means you cannot reconvert. You can't even reconvert to secularism or you die. So all these people who believe that they're so tolerant are converting to the world's most intolerant religion. And, and that seems somehow palatable to them? Our, our world is twisted and, and a complete nonsense in thinking, partly because our world believes that they really have complete religious latitude. That is the people of the world. But complete religious latitude, I can make whatever choices I want, and there's nobody that can tell me to do otherwise. And God says, that's not how life works. My commands stand. Whether you're a pagan or a Christian, my commands stand. The scriptures that we hold out as words of life are also words of death. Doesn't Paul say that in the New Testament where he says, in the process of preaching the gospel itself, the wicked hear this testimony of the scriptures, and what do they hear? Death. Because the only thing that the scriptures promise them in their current condition is eternal judgment of conscious torment before the Lord forever. It's a religion of death. And yet it's a religion of life because God asks you to trust not in the strength of your own flesh and the strength of your own mind or the good works of your hands, but trust in Jesus Christ, who's the only one who's capable of living righteously. Just trust in him. 
And we reject and go our own way and assume that God is obligated to give whatever religious latitude we want. All roads lead to... Mm. There's only one road, actually, that leads to life, and all other roads lead to death. God is not obligated to give the wicked time to repent. God is not obligated to let people make whatever religious choice they want. The Scriptures urge repentance right now. So again, and I've used the the illustration of the interstate lots of times, but it's just so convenient. I probably should have used... um, uh, an illustration from uh, my daughter's my youngest daughter's skein of yarn. She knitted a hat over Thanksgiving. In two days, she made this whole hat. It's a nice fuzzy thing. It really looks great. But you know how yarn is? It's all kind of convoluted and twisted. And at some point in the process, you have to pull it apart and untangle things. We're so used to taking alternative paths in life, and our life itself is a tangle that it can begin to influence our thinking to the point that we don't always believe that our choices really matter anymore. God is not obligated to let us make choices that result in ruin. I always look for cool illustrations. I found one from Star Trek. Anybody remember the old, of course you remember the original series, right? Some of you watched the original series when it was original. You know, some of the rest of us just watched reruns. Gene Roddenberry of the original Star Trek fame, you know, scriptwriter, screenwriter, and, and director for a lot of these, was actually raised a conservative Southern Baptist. But he became a secular humanist and an atheist. And a lot of that comes through in his script writing. Where he entertained, I mean, one of the things I always liked the original series for was, you know, this section or this particular show would be on Platonism, and then this one is on, you know, uh, Aristotelianism, and this one is on this philosophy and this philosophy and this, and you could see if you knew history and you knew philosophy well enough, you could see it in all the individual programs. But learning this this week about Roddenberry, it struck me, here he is, a man who was raised a conservative, in a conservative Christian household, threw it all away, presumes on grace, and assumes that this kind of wide latitude, any philosophy, any religion, any historical current goes, except for the biblical Christianity that he was raised in. And the Lord gave him a long enough life and space to repent, but there's no evidence that he did. God is not obligated to give personal security. Ammon came to a swift and tragic end after two years. And again, you think, look at all the, 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 the vagaries of life, just the, the oddities of it. Dad is just as wicked or more wicked than Ammon and his servants don't conspire against him and assassinate him, but Ammon's servants assassinate him after two years? Apparently, Ammon thought, you know, I'm, I'm impervious to threats. And yet the Lord cut him off very swiftly. He presumed on God's grace, including the grace that grants and withdraws protection from people. And this is one of the things that scares me about our nation, that God has protected us from an awful lot over the years. We've had our share of suffering in terms of participating in the world wars. But when, when did we actually have battles on our territory? The last one was the Civil War. 
and it was the most devastating of all. But presuming that somehow the security and the peace and the opportunity that God has given us has to last is foolishness. It's not to say that tragedy or calamity is always a sign of divine disfavor, but the assumption that we deserve favor is itself a spiritual misstep. The assumption that somehow peace and prosperity will go on is itself a misstep. And it fascinates me that people who have zero concern for God, who've denied his existence and who spat at his law, somehow believe they are owed divine protection. If you follow the sports world at all, you know that Megan Rapinoe this summer declared that she was about to retire, that this was going to be her last season in professional soccer. Some of you go, I don't know Megan Rapinoe. That's fine. I didn't either. I don't watch sports much, and I didn't watch women's sports even less. Um, And I refuse to watch the, well, never mind. We we can go into political statements later. There are good reasons not to. On November 11th of this year, she seriously injured herself six minutes into the game. And I still haven't found an update. I actually looked specifically for a medical update on her to find out what it was. When she went down clutching her uh, uh, calf muscle and below, she believes it's an Achilles tendon tear, which at her age is not really repairable, and she's done. Her invective about the incident, however, is telling so I wrote down some of her comments from her interview. She said, quote, I'm not a religious person or anything. Like, she wants to lay that out there. She, to, when she says, I'm not religious, okay, that's the benign way of saying what she has said for the last 40 years. I hate God. I especially hate Christianity. God doesn't exist. I'm an atheist. Curse, swear, blaspheme, every known way because I absolutely, utterly loathe God. Okay, but in this interview, I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there wasn't a God, well, this is further proof there isn't. Pardon? How does that even work? I hate God, I blasphemed him my entire life, and somehow he's supposed to keep me, a blasphemer pagan, from serious injury in games where I have never acknowledged his authority, have never wanted his... In In fact, Wikipedia calls her a progressive activist. What does that mean? It means, quote, she's an advocate for numerous LGBTQIA plus organizations. She hates God, America, capitalism, freedom, and righteousness. But she has the hubris to assert that she deserves personal protection and security to continue spitting her invective at God. And if anything happens to her, that's proof God doesn't exist. And I I cast backward and forward in Scripture and I go, wow. According to the Bible that I read, the goodness of God is designed by him to lead people to repentance. And yet, what do the wicked do with the goodness of God? They presume on it. They treat it as if it is something owed to them instead of something that God has graciously given. You say, oh, well, fortunately, we wouldn't do that. Well, yesterday I was blowing leaves. Okay? And I, I got out there. I wasn't planning to blow leaves. But at our property, when you have 10 acres of leaves to blow... <laughs> 
you, you have to work with the wind, not against it. So I went outside and the wind was blowing straight out of the east, which is rare this time of year. Which means that a certain portion of our property, that's when you have to blow leaves. It's from the road that abuts Tanyard and, and you got to get the trench cleaned out because it's two feet deep in leaves and blow them all the way up into the woods. So I'm like, yes, we got an easterly wind. So I got everything all situated and ran down there, started blowing. And what happens as soon as you start blowing, men? The wind changes direction. It came straight out of the north. I'm like, well, okay, at least there's this long road frontage, so I'll go to the north end of the east side of the property, and I'll start from the north end, and I'll blow them, you know, in a line back, you know, that, and it'll still all work. And then the wind came straight out of the west, and I found myself fuming and getting, you know, angry I mean, like, God, why would you, I mean, I don't have, to, I don't have time, as I certainly don't have the stamina anymore to be out here fighting the wind for all this time. And, and while I'm in the process of fuming against God, uh, the thought struck me, oh, so you're presuming that I just have to give you the wind that accommodates what you want to do today. I'm like, wow, you know, even as a believer trying to walk with the Lord, I still fall into this, I deserve a life in which God accommodates my whims. I deserve a life in which the things that I want to accomplish today, God like clears the path for. And so it's a smooth road for me. And so I had to repent and pray and just say, well, let, let's try this again in which, Lord, I can't fight you. If you keep the wind going the wrong direction, this is a, a futile enterprise. I might as well just pack it up and go in. And in his grace for that moment, he chose to move it back around to the east, and I was able to finish the job in a few hours. But I thought, interesting that our own hearts would spit at God just like Megan Rapinoe's when left to ourselves. God is not obligated to give us any good thing. So when we receive good from his hand, thanksgiving. And when we aren't receiving what we would define as good for, from his hand, let's reorient our thinking and say, it must be good. It's hard, difficult, painful, sorrowful, but it still must be good. And we are to trust him. God is not obligated to give temporal justice. Verse 24 shows us here that uh, Ammon is assassinated and a lot of times that assassinations occur, the, the assassin has the uh, wisdom to flee. We dealt with this with Sennacherib a few weeks ago. Do you remember that? Two of his sons conspired against him and killed him in the house of his own God, and then they fled into a far distant land. Here, Ammon's servants assassinate him in the house, and they hang around. In this particular instance, uh, the wicked got justice. Ammon got justice and the wicked got justice. But God is not obligated to give justice immediately. A lot of the wicked uh, use, again, the opportunity of time as warrant for continuing to do wrong because I've gotten away with it so far. I've gotten away with it so far. I've been doing drugs, not me. Okay, I should clarify because people are going to listen to this one online as well. I have not done drugs ever, but people will do drugs for years and say, eh, hasn't had any 
final and long-term effects until it does. I've been drinking and driving, and it hasn't had any ill effect until it does. And sometimes people get away with it their entire lives. I, was one, I remember my dad using a particularly old, crude uh, comedian of, of his era as an example. The man lived to, uh, I think it was 105 years old, somewhere around in there, and hated God as well. Just like Rapineau, constantly blasphemous his entire life long and used every opportunity to attack God and at- attack his people. And God gave opportunity, opportunity, 105 years worth of opportunity. And sometimes as believers, we can look at that and go, seriously? I mean, seriously. Why, why are you giving this wicked person so much time? Well, the Lord doesn't settle his accounts in time. He settles them in eternity. And a person may or may not get temporal justice, but eternal justice is guaranteed. Second Chronicles comments on Ammon. He did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Ammon, demonstrative pronouns, as opposed to that Ammon, there, are, there aren't any other Ammons around. But the Lord kind of puts his finger on But this guy who thinks he's so much, this Ammon incurred guilt more and more. God could have done it differently. He could have given Ammon a more immediate judgment, a longer peace followed by judgment, a long life that saw no evident judgment. But in the end, God does bring justice to the wicked. And here, he raised the wicked against the wicked and caused judgment to fall as he intended. A week and a half ago, pro-Hamas rioters attacked Capitol Police injuring quite a number of them, sending a bunch to the hospital. Um, Just a few days earlier, 250,000 pro-Israel demonstrators demonstrated in the same places, in the same spaces, without incident, without injury. In the pro-Hamas riot, there were only 250 present, and yet they caused damage and injury. And yet the world currently views which of the two as wicked. And the world views which of the two as candidate for prosecution, if we can find anything wrong with it. And the world views which of the two as possessing a freedom and a right to do whatever they want because of their cause. God is not obligated to give temporal justice, nor does he tell us that the structures that surround us in the world are going to give you justice, are going to give me justice. But he will mete it out in the end. The testimony of our text is pretty simple. We don't know much about Ammon's life. We know how long he lived. We know that he did evil. But we know this much at least. God is never obligated to bear with the wicked. So humble ourselves before him right now. Father, we're thankful for your word this day. Thank you for the privilege of hearing it. Help us not to presume on your grace. Resting on your grace is one thing. Casting ourselves on your grace is one thing. 
Confessing our absolute reliance on your grace is crucial, but presuming on it, never. We are just like the the sinners of this world in this regard, and that is that a sinful nature, a sinful state still exists within us and wages war against your spirit. And so we find ourselves, if we are not careful, assuming that we deserve the kinds of things that Ammon felt that he deserved. And instead of presuming upon anything, may instead we take up your call to live holily, righteously, and godly this week, living for you very intentionally instead of living for ourselves. And in this, demonstrate that we really are your children. We bless your name and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.